Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books with me, Julie Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week, I'm talking to Dr. Rupi Orjula about his latest book, Dr. Rupi Cooks. When I started writing down recipes for my patients, I was running really late in clinic uh, because I would be ferociously writing down things for people to take away and that's where the idea of like putting this stuff on social media came from where i could just say look go to the doctor's kitchen follow one of the recipes that you like the look of and just try and start creating a habit around eating for health He's a best-selling author, a BBC presenter, a podcaster. His podcast, The Doctor's Kitchen, is massive. His Instagram following is in six figures, and yet somehow he manages to make it to work as a GP. If anyone can change the narrative about why healthy eating is so important for the whole society, it's Dr. Ruby. And of course, it all starts in the gut. So gut health is a really interesting area because it sounds really sexy and novel and, you know, uh, avant-garde, but... Actually, if, if you look at traditional medicine, whether it's uh, traditional Chinese medicine, whether it's Ayurvedic medicine, they all say the same thing. Health starts in the gut, right? And, and you know, I, I've had plenty of I told you so's from my family when I started getting into this and start looking into the research. And we're like, you know, we told you it's all about getting variety in. It's about getting probiotics, pickles, all that kind of stuff. There's a reason why cultures from across the world all have these types of foods in their way of eating um and and when i uh, wrote my first book back in 2017 i was looking at food through the lens of yes uh um uh, nutritional medicine like gut uh, health uh, epigenetics the ability of food to to switch certain genes on and off uh, not the the sequence of your genes obviously um as well as anti-inflammatory diets the mediterranean uh, way of eating um, but really, I, I'm piggybacking off decades of research, of, of, uh, of scientific research, but also thousands of years of uh, just tradition and, and practice. Um, so I think even though it sounds really novel to talk about gut health today, I think it, it's pretty much baked into the, the way we, we have learned how to uh, eat throughout evolution. Ruby, I mean, you know, you say you're on a mission to help everybody leverage the, the incredible power of food. Now, we are all over healthy food and gut health and all that kind of stuff. And we'll go into that. But how do you reach everybody? It's a really, um, it's a really important question. Um, I think um, it it would be ambitious of me to say that I, as a single person, can influence every every single inhabitant of the UK. Um, and really, what I can do is start having the conversations and getting the messages across to as many people that I can within my locus of influence. Um, and influence people in other sectors to do their best as well. So one way in which I can do that is using my little microphone, which is the podcast, which is why I have conversations with scientists, people in the medical profession, uh, people within medical uh, education um, as well, uh, getting everyone talking about nutritional medicine and the science behind uh, food. Um, but then I also have conversations with chefs, uh, with people in the catering industry, um, people who operate wonderful charities like um, One Feeds Two or Fair Share, um, people like Sheila Dillon, um, you know, who has a, an incredible audience as well. 
and and getting them thinking about food as medicine but also accessibility um I had a really good conversation with Jonathan Pauling, who I'm sure you've come across before, um, CEO of the Alexandra Rose charity, who are piloting uh, food vouchers that can be exchanged at local food markets for fresh, healthy food. And this is like the first step, I would say, toward this crazy idea that uh, I was thinking of uh, just a couple of years ago about what would the NHS look like if we were able to prescribe healthy food. Um, and they're actually piloting uh, this this uh, study in Brixton. I'm actually visiting uh, them later on this week. Um, and we're going to really get into like what that potentially could look like uh, for, for me as a GP and having that ability to prescribe healthy food. Um, so, so yeah, to, to, to answer your question, it's, it's a really difficult position to say you know we want to get this message not just to those who can afford the time and the effort and you know the ability to go to uh, their local uh, farmers market but also the people who are on the breadline people that we see as general practitioners day in day out in the nhs who are struggling um with multiple jobs and feed their children etc etc so it's uh i think it's a from from my perspective it's it's all about trying to influence as many people using my little microphone and engaging with people who are doing some wonderful things far far better than i could ever imagine yeah i mean it's really interesting i did a program for channel 4 30 years ago about the mediterranean diet and then wrote the book my first book mediterranean health diet At that time, I was interviewing people who were saying exactly the same. The Mediterranean diet was being prescribed by doctors at that time for people who just didn't Mm. have access to healthy diets for all sorts of reasons. We know more about that now. We know about how important it is to eat healthily while you're pregnant. We know about food deserts. We know about the impact of junk food around schools, you know, the campaigns are really making those things clear. And I'm not sure whether it's changing the narrative because here you are saying that, you know, 30 years on, healthy food could be prescribed on the NHS. You know, yesterday we we heard from Henry Dimbleby saying that he's resigning as food staff mm. of the government because actually he's banging his head against a brick wall. You're absolutely right. You can keep talking to people, but actually you are talking to a within the echo chamber. Yeah. Uh, you've got hundreds of thousands of, of followers on Instagram, people really listening to you, you know, and, and all these things do change the narrative. Um, I wrote another book recently about um, TV chefs and their influence, mm. Jamie Oliver and all those kind of really life changing uh, programs on television. And I interviewed the then director general of the BBC. And he said, actually, if you get the middle classes changing the narrative of food, it does influence the entire food culture. And what we're seeing now in 2023 is a very different food culture. We're talking about gut health in a way, though, that really mm. changes the narrative again. It's it's that kind of, oh, something new factor. Is that what you're trying to do with this book? In my first book um, in 2017, uh, during that time, there was a lot of wellness bashing, particularly of uh, young 20-something-year-old women from both the UK, US, and Australia about how they were directing the narrative around uh, well-being without really having... Clean eating. Yeah, clean eating, and, and without really having any sort of scientific background. 
And I remember, uh, you know, being in the midst of this sort of media fury, and I can understand people's anger towards uh, this sort of uh, narrative. But at the same time, uh, taking on board your point about influencing the the quote-unquote middle classes, what those uh, people and, and social media influencers actually did was actually create a new culture where drinking green juices and having kale in your diet was cool. And I, I think there's some benefits from that. I actually think that having that kind of influence and getting people thinking about healthy eating as something uh, to aspire toward it's probably a net benefit and i say that with reservation because i i, I want to um you know be very empathic about the impact on eating disorders uh, but i think overall getting people thinking about this way of eating is, is probably a good thing and it's up to people like myself who can lens lend a, a clinical perspective lend a scientific lens to uh nutritional medicine and food as medicine for for us to sort of steer the direction of where healthy sh- eating should be going and also who should be able to access that and the, the you know the the obvious answer to that is everyone um and so yeah t- taking on board that point about you know influencing as many people as possible starting with the middle classes making it cool making it aspirational i think probably would open it up to as many people as possible well, it's interesting because, you know, that book that I wrote is all about how aspiration can change your diet and create food culture. And, you know, that happened. I mean, I was just literally telling the stories of, of the people who made Jamie Oliver and who made, you know, food cool back in the end of the 90s, early 2000s. Um, and, and it did change food culture. But we don't watch television anymore. Not really. I mean, you're a BBC presenter, so you could tell me the sort of the background of that one. But actually, people don't really get very much information, certainly not the majority of people. I mean, how important is television to you in your messaging? It's a really good point. I mean, if you ask like uh, my friends who are all you know, mid to late 30s, um, some of my younger friends in the 20s, you know, they're getting all their information via their phones or via their laptops. Um, when it comes to people who tend to buy my books, it's generally an older uh, audience, um, you know, who who still watch things like TV in the evenings, like people like my parents, you know, who are in their 60s, and they still use the, the TV as their main resource. And, and actually, you know, if you're looking at people who are most aware, I would say, of the need to change their diet uh, on a tighter timescale, it's most likely going to be that generation of people although I want people to start thinking about this a lot earlier. Um, and actually, I remember writing uh, in my, my second book, uh, Eat to Be Illness, about uh, the chapter on cardiovascular health. And the first paragraph was something along the lines of, you know, you might be inclined to skip this section because you think it only applies to whether you're, you know, if you're 50 years old and you've got high cholesterol and your GP is telling you to change your diet, but actually cardiovascular health starts as early as your teens. Um, and we should really be, you know, creating a culture where we're all thinking about looking after our hearts, our brains, our immune system at a lot earlier uh, stage in our lives. Yeah. I mean, I made an episode of the Food Foundation podcast only a, a- two months ago about the importance of maternal health and and there is significant research to show that obesity starts in the womb um let's let's drill down let just give us a picture of why the gut 
is the, the beginning and the end of everything. What is it about the gut that we really need to understand? When we talk about gut health, we're really talking about um, the gut microbiota, which is the fancy name for the microbes that live uh, in and around our body, but largely concentrated in the large intestine, uh, also known as the colon. Um, it's about two or three pounds of material, and whilst it's largely made up of bacteria, it also contains things like fungi, um, nematodes, viruses. And actually, I think we're scratching the surface when it comes to uh, viruses in particular. A lot of people now have heard of the microbiome uh, and the bacteriome, but actually the virome is something that hasn't really been explored in a lot of detail. And I wouldn't be surprised if suddenly we, we start thinking about viruses in a very different way. Yeah, uh, in the same way we're now looking at bacteria. You know, 99% of the bacteria that we have in our body is doing a good thing to us. But if you ask, if you're asking the same question 40 or 50 years ago, when we started using antibiotics more uh, regularly, most people would think about bacteria or microbes in general as, as something uh, uniquely bad. Um, so I think there's yeah. going to be a, a change of thinking in that. Yeah, germs in general. Yeah. Um, and so this microbiota or this microbiome, which specifically refers to the genetic material of all the different microbes that make up um, uh, the microbes that, that live uh, in our body, but largely concentrate in the large intestine, they are responsible for digesting food, maintaining uh, blood sugar balance, uh, improving the health of the gut lining itself. They create metabolites. They uh, have an impact on brain well-being and your mental well-being. They literally communicate with your brain. It's called the second brain, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They're calling it the second brain, the second immune system, the forgotten organ. There's all these different sort of ways in which to describe the importance of this this population. And it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, for, for as sexy as it is to talk about the microbiota, um, and as interesting as it is, and as complex as it is, the solutions of looking after your gut are not as complicated as we'd like to believe. It, it doesn't really matter about getting a specific strain of microbes in your fermented food or a probiotic capsule. There's some really simple things that we can do to improve the population and ensure it thrives such that it looks after our bodily systems. Um, and, and I summarize that in the book with three things. It's polyphenols, prebiotics, and getting plants yeah. into your diet. Um, what do those mean? So polyphenols are the thousands of different chemicals that you find in colored uh, vegetables. So whether it's a, your humble apple or cranberry or uh, beets, you know, all these things have uh, important micronutrients like vitamins and minerals, of which there are 22, um, that we see as essential. But actually, there are thousands of other chemicals that confer benefits to us as well as the plant themselves. And these haven't actually been studied in uh, an incredible amount of detail we're actually still again scratching the surface about all these different chemicals some of which you would have heard of um, things like resveratrol uh, as many wine drinkers would have heard of um, or flavanols that you find in um, chocolate dark chocolate 
uh, quercetin that you'll find in things like onion and yeah. garlic and, and other alien vegetables. But there are literally thousands uh, of them that you consume when you have a whole ingredient in your food. And so the aim of the game is to try and get as many different types of polyphenols as possible, which is also where you have this other sort of thing that's coming out in the ether about these 30 different um, plant varieties that you want yeah. in, a, in your weekly diet. Is it something as easy as saying go for highly coloured vegetables? Uh, yeah, it is. And I would say that there seems to be some sort of um, uh, trend towards only going for the coloured varieties rather than the sort of white varieties. So, you know, instead of going for the white onion, you should go for the red onion. Or instead of going for tender stem broccoli, you should go for purple sprouting broccoli. And I would say uh, that's a bit of a dangerous game because, uh, yes, white onion doesn't look as attractive uh and it doesn't and and now that you know about polyphenols and colors you want to go for the brightly colored ones really diversity is the spice of life here so you want to try and get as much variety as possible because in the white onion you might have some more of those things like quercetin and allicin and, and all these other chemicals whereas in the red onion you might get more of the anthocyanins and just because we know a bit more about anthocyanins which are the, the which are what give uh, the, the, these uh, ingredients, the red color, doesn't necessarily mean that that's better than all the other ones. So it's really about getting as much variety as possible. And, and, and that's sort of the, the aim of the game. But I suppose, you know, if you're looking through, so we're in March now and you're walking through your supermarket or your market, preferably, and you are looking at all the different colours of the vegetables, particularly if you're looking locally and, you know, particularly seasonally, you're going to be seeing a lot of green. Yeah. You're going to be seeing a lot of brassicas, aren't you? Um, you know, how do you up your game? You're not going to be finding tomatoes. So, you know, we have the, we've got tomato shortages because of the hurricanes in Morocco at the moment, which brings our attention to the impact of climate change on the way that we eat and our relationship with different countries around the world and throws up all sorts of you know ethical questions around that so local seasonal if you possibly can but you've just got green so and potatoes and and root vegetables you know probably for another couple of months haven't yeah. we you know how do you do that ethically what how do you keep stimulating your gut yeah um you know and, and that is the thing isn't it keep it adventurous keep it excited how do you do that and think ethically about how you're keeping your carbon footprint down yeah it's a, it's a really good point um there are a variety of different ingredients that we actually grow here in the uk uh, now it also applies to things like pulses so things like cow peas um fava beans all the things that are sort of less fashionable and um, you know we more we, we tend to go for uh, the kind of legumes that we're more familiar with those also count as varieties they also have their own different types of plant chemicals that are uniquely beneficial for us we're also lucky in this day and age that we can rely on frozen food um, and this sort of leans on to you know my sort of work with bbc food and, and some other organizations looking at the accessibility of trying to get as many different types of um plants in, in people's diets whilst uh, being conscious of a budget as well and then spices spices are incredible concentrated sources of these polyphenols and yes they come from all over the place and we, we tend to get a lot of our exotic spices from abroad but they also store very well um, and they inject, inject a lot of uh, flavor as well as those uh, colors and the polyphenols that we want in our in our cooking in addition to that 
with with the polyphenols you also have the other two p's uh so prebiotics and plants so when you're having a plant heavy diet and and just to clarify i'm not i'm not vegan or vegetarian i'm largely plants and i and i call myself plant focused or or plant driven um or plant forward uh, when you have more plants in your diet, you're going to be consuming a, a greater variety, hopefully, of all these different types of, of um, ingredients. And that is, again, uniquely beneficial for our microbes that thrive on all these different interesting uh, substrates or sources of food. And prebiotics are those unique fibers that are super specialized and your microbes specifically enjoy. And they're, they're called prebiotics because they... Um, are, are positioned such that they will improve the um, survivability of your microbes and actually encourage diversity of those populations. And they're very simple ingredients. It's things like onions and chicory, artichoke, garlic, all the things that we uh, are, are fermentable and, exa- and, and very accessible as well in most supermarkets. Yeah. I mean, let's put some pictures around those. I, I used your book when it first came through. I had a writing retreat that weekend and everybody was looking through the book. And I only used the book for the writing retreat. So I cooked a wild mushroom rice with fennel and courgette. Uh, I did the greens in a spicy sesame sauce. I did the herby leeks with chickpeas and feta. Nice. It's easy food, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it, interesting. I mean, we'll go through your food moments very quickly to kind of put some more colour around that. But these are really super easy and very accessible and not expensive foods, yeah. aren't they? I mean, just t- tell me the four food moments that you've chosen. The prawn saganaki, for example. Just go through very quickly, you know, what's in that so that we can taste it as you're talking about it. One thing I... I always want to get across with my cooking because this is born out of necessity, right? I was, I was, I've been working in the NHS for over 14 years. Um, when I started writing down recipes for my patients, I was running, running really late in clinic, uh, because I would be ferociously writing down things for people to take away. And that's where the idea of like putting this stuff on social media came from, where I could just say, look, go to the doctor's kitchen. Follow one of the recipes that you like the look of and just try and start creating a habit around eating for health. And so most of my recipes are super simple, one pan, focus on vegetables, very um, uh, interchangeable with the ingredients. We usually put alternatives in, uh, for each in- ingredient as well. So it, it caters for seasonality as well as access um, and they're budget friendly. And so but but the other thing I, I also do is I want to reflect the rich uh, culinary heritages of the people that I see. So I'm lucky to work in a city in the UK, like many cities across uh, the UK, um, in, in addition to London. We have people from all different types of background, Korean background, Sri Lankan background, Ghanaian background, you name it, we've got it. And they all have their rich history of food. And, and so one thing I, that you'll notice across all my cookbooks, in particular this one, is that it skips through different cuisines because I want people to understand that just because these are using mm. the principles of a Mediterranean way of eating doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be Mediterranean flavored. You mm. can flavor it according to whatever cuisine you love yeah. and you, you want to eat. And so the prawn saganaki is a good, great example of that. This, this actually came from a, a holiday. I, I went on a holiday with a good friend of mine 
uh, two good friends of ours who are gynecologists, uh, one of whom is Greek, and I uh, took us to Thessaloniki, and we went down one of the peninsulas in late September because, uh, top tip for anyone, it's end of season, it's, it's a lot cheaper, and it's near empty. Uh, so you get the whole place to yourself, and you have, like, you know, real delicious uh, food that mostly the locals have. And I remember sitting down having this saganaki, and I was like, this is, like, nothing I've ever had before outside Greece. It is absolutely rich and delicious. And I want to I wanna mimic this flavor in a way that's accessible for so many people at home where, you know, it won't be authentic. It won't be exactly how this person's made it because no doubt they've put a ton of feta in it. And they're like, you know, a local honey that has a particular scent uh, as, as a result of the, you know, the bees and, and yeah. all the rest of it. So I can't mimic it exactly, obviously, yeah. but I want people to have that sort of um, the experience. And so the, 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 the prawn sacanate that I've made is you know uh deliberately inauthentic it's got things like nigella seeds in it's got oregano it's got you know chopped tomatoes you can get from a a can but it does have the the richness of the sauce with the feta and the uh the honey in it you know we cook it down for not too long I, i mean the original one will be cooked down for a lot longer so you can really intensify those flavors but enough such that you get the sweetness of the tomatoes and obviously we're we're not as lucky as our Mediterranean cousins over here where they have like wonderful tomatoes, you know, you know, so there's a real big difference to with the tomatoes that you have in your local supermarket versus the ones that you can get uh, in Europe. But, you know, that being said, we can still have like, you know, uh, uh, the breath of, of um, the silk tomatoes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and yeah, you just create that base and you put your prawns in, you can make it very easily with a vegetarian because I use beans and you'll notice a theme in my recipes that there's yeah. a lot of variety of different legumes because a they're accessible b they have the benefit of the extra fiber and these are things that we need to get used to eating particularly in in today's day and age actually i would say because you know we want to try and get as much fiber into people's diets we really lack fiber across the population um and and getting those sorts of legumes into our diet is a really easy way of increasing fiber protein in a way that isn't going to overload your uh, microbes if you're just looking at meats it's a fantastic way of kind of just pulling all your ideas and, you know, the, the result of experience and scientific rigour uh, in, in one dish. Um, interestingly, the Ayurvedic Jewish penicillin does the same thing in a very different way. You know, Ayurveda is thousands of years old. You know, Jews have been eating chicken soup for the soul for, you know, thousands of years. Tell me about this dish. Uh, I, I did a show with Sheila Dillon for the food programme a couple of years ago, and she invited Levi Roots, a rabbi, and me to uh, create a comforting dish that's for the soul as well as uh, health. And and the the rabbi obviously did chicken soup. I did an Ayurvedic style uh, uh, dish that my mum had had, had taught me many years ago. And Levi Roots did like a a, a goat curry. And I just remember thinking, like trying the soup and I was like, I've got to try and combine those delicious spices of my Indian heritage with the, the nourishing comfortness of of the chicken soup and that's where the sort of two came together and this is something that we tend to make every couple of weeks so you know the the ayurvedic jewish penicillin is uh, uh, you know as you can tell really inauthentic 
but something that warms my soul <laughs> and people absolutely love. We, we, we had over a thousand testers for these recipes before we finalized the recipes and put them in the book. And the Ayurvedic Jewish penicillin was one of the most favorited dishes. So it's, yeah, definitely one to try. Fantastic. And the sticky, tangy green beans. I mean, I love the fact that you don't buy into this time poor narrative, but actually a lot of the, the dishes that you create are very quick and this one is fantastic it uses really wonderful flavors but you can knock it up in five minutes can't you yeah yeah this is uh, a firm favorite of mine so greens sauteed or blanched um, you have lentils obviously uh, some some red peppers but everything about this dish comes down to the dressing and the dressing is sweet mm. sticky tangy it is absolutely delicious it's reduced tamarind you can get in most supermarkets these days tamarind paste um, molasses black vinegar or you can use a, a, another type of vinegar we put alternatives in there and just reducing that over about eight to ten minutes is all you need to create this sticky glaze that just lifts the green beans like nothing else and I remember having this sticky sauce when I was in Australia. Um, I used to live in Australia, and I was there very recently with my wife um, in a in a uh, an, an Asian um, restaurant, and they'd put it over um, some tempura. And I remember like s- trying this, and I, I, I spoke to the. Um, the waiter and I spoke to the chef obviously they wouldn't give me the recipe but I, I had to sort of remember exactly the the flavoring the, the the taste of that and I spent literally about a week that following week when I was in Australia trying to recreate the flavor as, as like just you know with using all the different ingredients I could find out there and I nailed it <laughs> <laughs> and now I, 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 I use it in the recipe and it's, yeah, I, I, I just became obsessed with it. But it's, yeah, it's a wonderful dressing. You can use it on loads of different things. And, you know, using that idea, um, your fourth food moment is your deconstructed cherry ripes. And it's, again, about how to make something really sweet. That is OK. You know, it's sugar that's the problem, isn't it? It's white processed sugar that is as harmful as, you know, the other white stuff. But you don't have to use sugar to make things sweet. And they can be good for you. Tell us about this one. Yeah, um, everything really comes down to dose. And, and this is what I say to everyone. Like, you know, you, you, you'll hear things, like if you look, you look over the last couple of decades, you'll hear things about fat. You'll hear things about sugar now. Whatever the sort of devil du jour is, uh, it really comes down to dose. You know, I always say, like, you can poison someone with water, but water is one of the most important, if they're not the most important substance that we have. Um, and and ever, ever more so as well with water scarcity. So it really comes down to dose. And so when I use sugar in my recipes, it's at the appropriate amount to impart the required flavor, but also not overpowering the bitter notes and all the rest of it. And so th- this recipe is my deconstructed cherry ripe. Cherry ripe is a really popular sweet that I remember having when I was working in uh, ITU and A&E in Australia as like my midnight snack. Um, when, uh, when, when I was working night shifts and it's for any Australians, they don't know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like this dark chocolate with a, a, a rich cherry jelly. It's not very good for you. It's full of E numbers and all the rest of it. Um, and it has like a coconutty sort of flavor to it as well, similar to a lamington. And so with this recipe, I just mashed together a desiccated coconut, some dried cherries. Um, I used the, the juice of like some macerated cherries and then put a dark chocolate, 75% lid on the top. And I, and I put it in a ram 
pumpkin and that way you'd like dive into almost like a creme brulee uh, with your spoon you have like these shards of dark chocolate and then you have the the sort of coconutty cherryness and it's it's so similar to the cherry ripe and i really prefer this now it's actually one of the most popular uh, sweets that we have um and it, it, can, it yeah it's definitely better for you because you have the fiber from uh, the dried cherries you have the the coconut you have the dark chocolate with the slavanols but it's not something that you feel guilty about afterwards and that's something i think is really important it's five years on since the sugar tax and um i totally get what you mean about dose but actually we need to change the culture about sugar use don't we when you've got people coming in to see you uh who have obesity related diseases type 2 diabetes heart issues what do you tell them about sugar is it as simple and i know it's not as saying it's a dose issue um i think it's it's a, a, a multifactorial issue. Um, you're right in that it's not just uh, the fact that people need to reduce their dose of sugar, because I think in a lot of cases, people aren't aware of just how much sugar they're consuming, because it's insidious, it's in everything, it's in our jams, our sauces, our breads, our um, healthy items, you know, the the, the heavily marketed um, good for you uh, products are, are generally laden with different types of sugars that are natural but are still as harmful as the highly processed white stuff. Um, and then you have uh, the issue of marketing to the most financially vulnerable with the cheapest foods that seem like a good idea and seem like you're saving money but actually you're not satiating yourself and it can be just as expensive in the long run particularly if you weigh up the cost of ill health and the, the cost of loss of productivity and all the rest of it what i'm also seeing actually is it's not just a problem of the working classes it's not just an issue with those who can't afford to eat you know from their local market or or you know, choose organic or whatever it might be it's everyone and actually i think the big reckoning is a lot of my colleagues who are medics are now being diagnosed with pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes and that's when the penny drops and that's when people start thinking about the food environment a lot a lot more holistically um and, and i feel like you know we are right for a culture change but i tell you what it's not going to come from uh calorie counting or calorie counts on menus it's not going to come from reformulations uh, honestly it's going to come from creating a culture where we look at healthy foods foods cooked from scratch as the norm and not healthy that's the real big change we need to instill thanks for listening do follow me on instagram i'm at food Jilly smith and on substack where you'll find a little extra bites to accompany the episode just search for Jilly smith on substack and i'll see you next week <laughs>